Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. All right, what's up, everyone? We're back here with another Lessons Learned. Um, Alt, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, buddy. How are you? Good. Doing all right. Hanging in there. I'm waiting for the warm weather to come in, but I guess the groundhog... Any just, day now. You know, any, it's just like it was 60 degrees like two days ago. started snowing yesterday. I was driving back from the gym, and my car was swerving, and I wasn't even drunk. <laughs> it was literally the wind yeah. just taking me all over the place. It was insane. That's scary. Well, uh, I... Th- I think Southern California, a couple of days, actually the weekend of the Super Bowl, they had a heat advisory. So <laughs> it's just really about uh, where you are, right? You Insane, know, man. State of Pennsylvania, where we're dealing with the exact opposite. But uh, yeah, yeah, Super Bowl weekend, Absolutely. I remember. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember reading that. So I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. But um, yeah, man, I'm with you. When is Grand House Day? Did we it, pass it? We passed it, it? February 2nd. Uh, saw his shadow. So predicting six weeks yeah. more would have winter. But Essentially, the groundhog only comes out to see if there's mates. And so if there's no mates, it goes back in. But the question is, are there no mates because it's cold outside? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. Probably. I, I think if I was a mate and it was cold outside, I'd stay inside. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'll try. I was like, nope, not going out the front door today. Nope. <laughs> it's too cold. <laughs> nope. No, sir. <laughs> Sweet. Oh, man. All right, man. Well, All hey, right, dude. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, no. So uh, we had a couple of amazing guests uh, for the last couple of weeks, and so um, you know what? Um, where do you want to start? Where do you want to take it off? Sure. So what are these episodes? 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 Uh, forty-seven to forty-nine here. Um, so Jade Wu, right? So she was our psychologist um, that also does behavioral sleep, uh, dealing with insomnia patients. Then we went off to uh, Dr. Cherie Shu, who is a wellness pediatrician, and then a PMNR colleague, and that. Last episode was Raghav Sharma um, talking about preventive medicine. So let's take it off with the first episode then, Dr. Jade Wu. So this episode was all about sleep psychology, right? And what we were trying to dissect is insomnia and the link between that and anxiety. And, you know, delving further into what causes this anxiety, insomnia, chicken or the egg kind of scenario and how do people deal with it, right? I mean, sleep we know is such a huge issue. Insomnia is becoming a bigger and bigger issue as we move forward um, with technology, right? I mean, we now have the invention of blue blocking glasses and happy lights in the morning. So there's obviously a bigger culture now surrounding about getting proper sleep and rightfully so. So what what were your uh, main takeaways from that? Yeah, no, I loved our approach, right? I mean, it, it really, you can really tease out when somebody has a lot of wisdom first particular problem or just in life in general that she's been in this space for a long time working with people and she's seen the quote-unquote harm that all this information just the overload information that we get on tiktok and social media and other platforms and 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 books and whatnot and even the media right Mm -hmm. they just take clickbait headlines about the importance of sleep or rather the harm of not getting enough sleep and there is a lot of truth to that. And I was happy that Jade was able to tease out the, that, hey, look, the, the fact of the matter is that adverse outcomes are greater for people who don't get enough sleep, not only for sleep deprived folks, but also for insomniacs. 
but maybe it is blown out of proportion. Mm -hmm. And also, more importantly, uh, just emphasizing on that aspect isn't necessarily helpful, right? And so um, she gave a lot of strategies and, and actually the approach that she takes when she's having these discussions. And, uh, and I really uh, appreciated um, that she painted a context for us all to appreciate of, you know, when what is important and how to approach it and how to think about it, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we live in this era where if we see a paper and we get a signal, right, showing that, hey, if you get one hour less of sleep per night, your cancer risk goes up three times, right? But that three times might be from like 0.001 to 0.003, right? So it's about actually looking at what is significant and uh, like what actually matters in life. And, you know, me and you have read Matthew Walker's book and we love Matthew Walker and we think he's a brilliant scientist, but I advise people who have read that to also check out Alexi Guzzi's um, uh, blog about kind of breaking down Matthew Walker's first chapter. And I think it's just so important to see both sides of the story because on one side, there's Matthew Walker who's legitimately trying to bring out good information, right? He does not mean to put out harm um, into the world when it comes to sleep. And he even says in his own podcast that he's not trying to scare people. He's just putting out the science and that's it. And then he'll give you strategies. And then Alexi's approach was, well, let me break down every single number you put out there and why this is wrong and how this could be causing harm. And so it's very interesting to see both sides. And, you know, like I said, sleep is becoming more of this, rightfully so, again, it's becoming a health issue, but it's also becoming a health solution, right? So we're looking at technologies like Eight Sleep and Whoop and Aura Ring that are tracking these data. Um, but then with that comes, okay, well, now we see these issues. So how do we balance the pros and the cons um, of all of this? And a lot of times, it depends on the person you are. If you're if you're a baseline anxious person, you might take that, oh my God, I'm in the red recovery zone of whoop or for the aura ring, whatever it might be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm low. What do I have to do today to get better sleep, right? And we're gonna try to implement better strategies versus like, hey, without this tracker, would you have thought of that? Like you probably would have just lived your normal life and been fine, right? So I think we're adding more anxiety sometimes. But then if you're on the other side of, you know, if you're baseline not too anxious and you know how to deal with that data, um, I think I think you're pretty okay with understanding the data and using it in a retrospective manner and saying, okay, well, these are the things that kind of made my sleep worse. So in the future, let me just try to have better habits. Yeah, no, that's extremely well said, man. I think that first and foremost, I, I, there's no question about it that lack of sleep in whichever form, however, you're, you know, whether it's truly deprivation versus insomnia um, is detrimental to long-term health. Right. Um, I've already said that, but what Jade had talked about is, you know, she had all these interested in, you know, sideways approach into learning about sleep because she was learning about all these neurodegenerative conditions, right? Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, that kind of stuff. And we know that there is a, a good association, uh, right? So there's correlation, but we also have some evidence to suggest there's causation for some of these things, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that's still being developed. Now, association studies are remarkably complex when it comes to that, just how to tease out what the, the one single thing is that's the cause of it. And, and that's beyond the scope of this discussion at this point. Uh, but I, I think that that we need to just get out there. It's very, very important. Um, kind of what you're emphasizing, um, or I want to come back to the point about, um, you know, Matthew Walker's book and Alexi uh, Guzzi, Guzzi, Guzzi. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Hope I'm not getting it right. <laughs> um, 
that he only dissected the first chapter. But it comes back to this broader question about communication, right? Mm. Communication and, and a, um, and a mass level, right? Kind of, I mean, not a fraction of people are listening to this podcast as they read the book for Matthew Walker, but still it's like you and I face this challenge every single day, right? When we post on social media, when we, <laughs> when we have discussions here about how are we communicating? Cause it's really about the interpretation mm-hmm. um, that can be very, very challenging. And so I, again, I go back to why I was so impressed with Jade is because um, she does this, right? It's when you're communicating at an individual level, it's a lot easier than communicating at, yeah. at, at the mass level. So I, I, I could change my mind on this, um, and I'm constantly working on how to refine that message so it isn't misinterpreted. But it is very, very, very challenging to curate a message that's going to be applicable, informative, and the least amount of, for lack of a better, offensive to every single person that you're talking to. Yeah. Um. And, and so that's a challenge, and I think every single scientist is trying to communicate that uh, com- or working on communicating that. I, I will plug in one more. A resource for people to listen to that it kind of looks at both sides uh, of this discussion. It's, um, I think, the John Brady podcast, but there's there's mm-hmm. a series, right? Of calling, I'm, I'm calling BS or something yeah. about science and whatnot. Um, and they actually revisit this uh, as well, and they talk about you know both sides. And Alexi Guzzi comes on and, and talks about it. Matthew Walker's not on it, um, and and he brings out other experts who mm-hmm. are who are routinely delivering public health messages on um, you know, how we can communicate that better. So I think that was very, very interesting and worthwhile for people who are interested as well. Yeah, that was actually a fantastic series. Just in the whole realm of science and data and how we interpret, like 100%, yeah, we definitely need to like that um, and recommend everyone checking that out. <clears throat> you know, to, to talk to your point about context, right? Like we, we can't people please everyone, right? Especially in Twitter, Instagram, where we don't have a whole chapter's worth of words that we can write. And so I always mm-hmm. encourage people whenever they might disagree with something or want to get more clarification, ask those questions, right? Like ask the content creators those questions. The only problem with that is I think we're so afraid to because we might come across as one ignorant or two dumb. So this might be kind of relevant, maybe a little irrelevant, but I, I, I remember seeing a post like last month on SportsCenter on their Instagram. And it was, um, I forget his name. I think it's Archie Manning Jr. or Eli Manning's son, I believe, right? And he's playing basketball. And He's playing basketball. He's, he's okay. He's like an average player in high school, but he's going into, you know, he's a five-star recruit as a quarterback. And some guy, you know, and the, and the caption was, oh, Archie Manning or like playing um, basketball, but something, something, football. And the first comment on there was like, wait, how do, you, how do you know he doesn't want to go into basketball, right? And then all these comments came in were like, are you stupid? Like, are you dumb? Like, why would he ever do that? Do you not see the way he's playing? And this guy responds, he's like, guys, I'm legitimately like just asking. Like, I'm not... I don't mean anything by this. Like, I'm just asking. I don't know anything about him, you know? But, like, it's just crazy how people can't see emotion, right? They just see words, and they just put their own perspective on things. And, sure, if you're a football fanatic, you're going to know that Archie is probably going into football and not basketball. But for someone who just follows SportsCenter and knows nothing about football, how the hell would they know, right? And I think that's – we see that culture so often, and it it, – prevents people from asking genuine questions because they feel like they're going to get bullied or ganged up on. And it's like, eh, you know what? It's not worth it. So it just kind of reminded me of that when you brought it up. That is really interesting, but uh, makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it's 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 one thing to even, I mean, there, in, in communication, when you're just writing a bunch of words on paper, like there's so much that's lost, right? I mean, we talk about people 
who are really attuned with this, you know, working with people all the time say that there's so much loss when you're communicating behind a screen, right? This is kind of the issue with schools and whatnot, body language, facial expressions. I mean, the whole, <laughs> at the risk of getting to this, but like the whole one argument behind not wearing masks is because so many, so much of our communication is facial expressions, right, right? Right. And so you're not getting any of that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Somebody that I respect a lot had share, uh, Eric Cressy. I mean, I think he had just shared like a post or something that his wife had tagged him in. Um, I, I don't know. There was a comment from somewhere. Somebody had said, Hey, like happy to jump on a quick call. Uh, if you think that'd be easier. And then the other person responded. It's like one of those like funny little things uh, saying, quote, there's uh, maybe not quote paraphrasing. There's, there's literally no situation where jumping on a call is better than email. Um, <laughs> and I found that to be very funny because, um, you know, as I'm having these discussions with employers and trying to find a job, I, I think the person that I was talking to my lawyer said, Hey, it's, it's always a better idea to um, go back on call because a lot of stuff is, is, is missed mm -hmm. and is lost in translation and through an email. I've always been that person. And I'm curious where you stand because I think in, in today, like probably a Gen X and, and maybe younger folks, they don't, they like texting. They, they like getting that information like that. And I'm just the type of person who'll pick up and, and phone call and call people. Um, where are you on that spectrum? Yeah, man, I agree with you. I think the face to face, the more emotion, the better, but I can tell you on the exact opposite, <laughs> you know, like I know that's one of my issues. Like I am a hundred percent text email. One of, one of the best compliments, but also probably not compliments is like, Darsh, I don't know how you respond so quickly to your text. Like I'm always mm. strapped with, it's just true. Like I'll, I'll respond within seconds. And it's not that like I let my phone use me. It's just like, I always just have it. Right. And for me, like, I don't know. I grew up in, in, in a family that respected punctuality, respected getting back. Like, that's just like, that's just what I do. I just try to get back as soon as possible. And I've learned to cut that back and be like, Hey, you know, there's actually probably disadvantages to this. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I don't know, man, it, it's, with, with technology moving forward and we're thinking about avatars and metaverse and all this stuff, it's almost like you, you, you want to keep that basic human emotion, but you also need to learn how to adapt now to more of a technological forward texting, simulated, augmented reality kind of world, right? So I think mm. just having that balance is, is key. But I will say, you know, when it comes to like job finding, or I know you posted that Peter Atia, uh, like uh, the mm -hmm. words matter, right? Like huge, huge, right? Just being authentic is what I'm really trying to, trying to bring out on myself now. And like the last two years is like, how do I be as real as possible? How do I call out the BS, you know, with friends or family? How do I actually put in words that matter, right? And that actually show how I feel. Because in the end, I think that's what matters, right? If we're trying to maintain relationships, we're trying to communicate better, get information across more effectively and efficiently, your word choice and your authenticity matter more. And you can't really do that over a text, right? I can't hear your voice. I can't hear your tone. I can't hear your inflection points. Um, and so a lot of it gets missed. Yeah. To Yeah. And, and to your point and, and to devil's advocates, to my own point, what, what I'll say is, that you also have to know yourself, mm -hmm. right? If you're somebody who has a very harsh tone or, you know, you have high levels of anxiety and it might be a quote, a quote unquote crucial conversation that you're getting into, you you might want to not use that because that might end up, you, you might end up shooting yourself in the foot. So that's where there, there are tons of tactics and strategies to learn how to communicate efficiently in email as well, yeah. not only efficiently, but also effectively, right? Email and text messages and that kind of stuff. And so using those types of, again, words and, and uh, you know, whatever it might be, codes or whatever you're going to use to, to leverage your own style of communication is going to be super, super critical. I think the book change maker that we've both mm -hmm. read and we've enjoyed. I mean, they talk about, they've got a whole section on feedback and how to 
receive and deliver effective feedback. There's yeah. actually a book that's on my doc. It's called Thanks for the Feedback that I just looked at the summary of. And it's very, very interesting mm-hmm. about actually um, receiving feedback, but also giving it, you know, and effectively and not offending the other person. Um, I mean, again, we're, we're well outside of the scope of <laughs> what we intended to discuss here, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think Jade would be happy because again, as a clinical psychologist, uh, this is probably up her alley just as much. Sure thing. All right. So I'll bring it back to the insomnia. Um, one of my key takeaways yeah. that I think is so important that I did not realize is things that insomniacs quote unquote do wrong. Right. And again, we put that in quotes because you're not necessarily doing something wrong. It's just how do we get you back to proper sleep? Right. And so my father was someone who started all of a sudden just dealt with insomniac about like two years ago, really frustrated, um, really anxious with his sleep, couldn't get it, probably was sleeping three to four hours. And wasn't sleep deprived, right? So the difference between sleep deprivation and insomnia is how much opportunity of sleep do you have, right? So an insomniac, you have, let's say eight hours, there's nothing withholding you from getting that proper sleep, let's say for however long you need, whereas sleep deprivation is, you don't even have the opportunity to sleep for however long you need. So, you know, classic examples, that single mother working two to three jobs, um, night shift workers, things like that, where it disrupts your normal pattern of getting enough sleep. So, One of the things she says is like, hey, if you are an insomniac, the best thing to do is undergo CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Because too often we try to fix it on our own. And the way we do that is with sleep hygiene, right? So blue blockers, um, not watching television, meditating at night, uh, doing all these different things. And what was interesting is that in sleep studies for insomniacs, the control arm is actually sleep hygiene. Like, I would never have thought that. I would never have thought that sleep hygiene is just a placebo. Um, and what you really need to do is actually take them through cognitive behavioral therapy, which there's a lot of components in it. But I can tell you from what I've seen with my father is they essentially shorten your um, wake up time window. So, you know, let's say you normally want to sleep by, let's say, 10 p.m. You get up by 7 a.m. But that's not happening throughout the night. So what they'll do is, OK, try to go to sleep by 10. That's fine. But first, we'll We'll, we'll work on the time you wake up and we'll shift that 7 a.m. up to, let's say, 5 a.m. So they're almost increasing your sleep drive and they keep doing that. And they'll tell you like, hey, it doesn't matter. Even if you feel like you want to wake uh, keep sleeping past five, don't do it. We're going to keep you up. And then they'll work on the front end as well. And they'll try to make it like 12. So they keep shortening the window until you're finally like able to sleep. Right. And there's nothing miraculous about this in a way. It's just creating a sleep drive and making you comfortable and understanding that, hey, you're able to sleep, like you can do it. All we had to do was just fix some hours up, but boom, here you go. And I remember telling my father before he went through CBT, um, hey, try the blue blockers out, try some ashwagandha, do this, do that. <laughs> um, you know, be, being the doctor I am, uh, I thought I was doing some good, but yeah, it wasn't working. And then what worked was cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> Yeah. And that's a perfect segue. I mean, I think she had kind of highlighted the different types of sleep drive mechanisms, right? That, mm. that help promote healthy sleep. And so, um, what you're talking about largely, so the first one is the homeostatic sleep drive, right? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the, I think, uh, in layman's terms, what is the sleep pressure that builds up throughout the day. And so it has a direct positive correlation with time awake, right? That's exactly the reason what you're describing. And so, um, you know, this is very, what's interesting about this actually is this is very sensitive to both cognitive and physical stimulation. So we talked Mm -hmm. about sleep pressure 
And the more active you are throughout the day physically, um, the more adenosine builds up in your system. And that's what's knocking you out, right? At the end of the day. But cognitively interesting does that same day. So if you do some mentally stimulating tasks, a lot of deep work throughout the day, but not only that, if you um, travel on vacation, right? And you do a tremendous amount of sightseeing, just that stimulation, the visual and cognitive stimulation can actually help you sleep much better. So from both of those ends, I mean, it makes sense, right? Just in, in my small brain here that you need to recover after you've had all this mental and physical stimulation. So yeah. that's one aspect of it as well. Um, and actually the CDC website has a really awesome like module on this stuff. And they actually have a really nice graph that we can link in the, uh, in the uh, show notes for that. So that's one aspect of it. And so folks who have like imbalances in the autonomic nervous system. So when you have insomnia and anxiety, you're um, your sympathetic nervous system is in hyperdrive, right? And so when that's the case, and that's why when you're stressed out or, or you know, um, whether it might be because you just ran a code or, you know, you're stressed out about an exam or whatever it might be, if your sympathetic nervous system is in hyperdrive, it's going to make it much more challenging. So that this is exactly what first CBT component is going to be directly addressing. That being said, though, long-standing history of anxiety and insomnia can start to rewire your actual hormones and mm. brain processes, right? And that's yeah. where the circadian sleep drive comes in. And so circadian sleep drive gets a ton of attention, I think. And so mm-hmm. I won't spend too much time on this, but this is the one that's regulated by hormones, right? So the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the hypothalamus, which is the the master circuit in, in, in your brain, this is your internal 24-hour-ish clock because yeah. um, studies have shown that it's not always 24 hours for every single person. Um, but what's interesting about this is in terms of responding to different stimuli, exercise even influences this as much, yeah. right? However, the stimulus that affects us even more than exercise, even more than melatonin, stuff like that is light. And Jay talked about that. Yeah. Right? Jay talked about how that might be the most important thing is anchoring your day by light in the morning. Right. And so we all, all three of us here and a lot of people that we know and we respect actually have started implementing early light exposure during the day, how that's so critical to set your circadian sleep drive throughout the day, um, especially with stupidity of daylight saving times, which none of us are fans of. <laughs> Got to move to Arizona. I don't know. Um, Arizona and there's another state, is there not? There probably is somewhere. Yeah. Around yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of states, I think. But anyways, um, and so that's the one um, that influences that. And again, there's a really cool um, picture that I shot that even actually through closed eyelids, the light penetrates mm-hmm. through the retina and translates right over to the SCN and, and, and will, will augment, um, the, uh, the circadian sleep drive. So it's super, super important to, uh, to control that as well. If you're going to be, um, actually, so this is where I think one of the things that the only sound piece of advice I got when I was an intern uh, on night shift is like, mm-hmm. we had this sleep module and they were like, Oh, like if you're going to be working nights then and you're driving home, just like wear sunglasses or something like mm-hmm. that. And, yeah, I'm not really sure it, it, <laughs> it helped that much, but uh, but anyways, yeah. Um, so that's all I'll say to that. So it's interesting. Yeah, she Jade Wu just wrote a tweet on that. Actually, um, I think there was some someone wrote like a question tweet and was like, "Hey, what's the one thing you would like tell everyone if you could one thing to do?" And her answer was, "Get light in the morning." And she even uses one mm-hmm. of those uh, light markers on morning. But the last thing I'll say about this episode is, you know, if you're a clinician out there, healthcare provider, thinking about going into this kind of stuff make sure you delve into your patient's history when it comes to sleep issues. You know, um, most people that come in with sleep issue will also have some sort of issue, right? It's rarely ever just solely sleep. And so, you know, I've been doing a better job at this now where I'll actually ask the patient, is it sleep onset? Is it sleep maintenance? What are they trying? What are they doing? Looking at their comorbidities, you know, the exercise, all that stuff. Because 
as you said, we know that sleep and the hormones that it plays can rewire a lot of things. And so sleep is not just the lone wolf. It's affecting everything else. Um, and then recognizing, hey, will sleep hygiene work for this patient or should I be referring them to psychology, a sleep psychologist and undergo CBT? And I think once you fix that sleep, you'll start to notice it's a world of a difference. Right on. All right, man, let's shift gears. Um, where are we going next? We're talking about uh, children, lifestyle medicine and children. Yeah, absolutely. Lifestyle medicine and children. So just for context for people, uh, Dr. Chirichu is a pediatrician. Uh, she works at a practice, I guess, with her, uh, with other colleagues. Um, but then she's incorporating lifestyle medicine into that practice. So unlike some of our previous guests who might have been doing direct primary care or functional medicine, having their own practice, their own lifestyle medicine practice, she is bringing in the concept of lifestyle medicine into her um, practice, so. Yeah, man, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm gonna keep this short and sweet. I think the there were two really, really big ones, which we can touch on a little bit more. The first one that we start off right off the bat, talking about the importance of treating the whole family, right? Um, again, the uh, either pro and con, depending on how you looked at it, is you have multiple patients in the room. That's not, I didn't get the sense from her that that was her approach. Uh, rather, she talked about how well, she actually had a backwards approach, right? I often think about, we think about how whatever the parents are doing, whatever the lifestyle the parents are going to be, they're going to model that behavior and the kids are going to follow suit. And that certainly is the case. However, she talked about how often she's treating the, the patient, the children, and they start making changes. And then because the parents are the one helping implement the changes, they're starting to to mimic the children, right? So it's a it's a backwards or reverse psychology type of situation. But it's it was really, really fascinating that I started thinking about. It makes sense though, because now being a parent and, and the sacrifice you start making, you want the absolute best for your children. And so if you're going to start making healthier meals for them because you want them to be better, um, it, it just makes it easier to make one meal, right? Um, I would not endorse that uh you know, you have one meal if, if alcohol is going to be part of it or really a couple of other beverages that you probably children shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be partaking in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That is, that is very interesting, man. Uh, you know, families that stick together and kind of do the same thing, see better results. I think, you know, everyone can agree to that. And we always touch on how parenting and modeling and behavior is so crucial to kids growing up, right? I mean, it's like a monkey see, monkey do. Kids aren't gonna, you can't just tell a kid to do something and they're just gonna do it, right? They're gonna see what their parents do and that's gonna be whatever they think is most beneficial for them, right? So if they see their parents just watching um, YouTube at night, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, I guess this is what you do, you know, to become an adult and, and progress. But if they see you right. instead, you know, reading a book and doing having better practices, um, I think that's what they're going to model, you know, even better. Yeah. Yeah. And she had talked about exercise, right? I mean, her disclosure was that exercise is not one of her favorite things to do in terms of the pillars of lifestyle medicine. However, um, incorporating play. I mean, and this is what I think you and I have done a good job uh, about saying, hey, let's just incorporate movement. And how do we do that? Right. For her and uh, their family, hiking is a way to do it. Right. And you're, you're killing um I don't want to say multiple birds, but uh, you, you, you're knocking off separate things, um, right? You're getting outside, so you're getting the sunlight, you're getting active, you're getting fresh air, and you're, you're, you're you know, interacting with nature. And I think there, there are a host of benefits that come with that too. And so that's important. The, the concept of, the, or the story that she shared about how, I forget how old her children were, but when they're watching TV and the kids just like flip back and 
Um, I mean, that one um, hits home with me because it is challenging, man. Um, and I, again, you know, sleep deprivation is is a, is a very close part of my life. I, I thought I was done for the intern years, but here we are again. And, uh, and I have a new sense of appreciation. But at the same time, there are days when you come home, you're tired and you just mindly scroll through social media. Yeah. I've mentioned to you before, it's sometimes I don't even know how I get an Instagram. Yeah. Like it's, it's even worse now, right? You're just, you're just on autopilot at this point. Yeah. Um, and now my daughter is getting old enough where she starts to recognize the phone. Like if I put a camera on her face to just record her reactions or something, cause I want to get something that's cute. She'll immediately stop or look at the camera and it's wild. She's not even three months old. And, uh, and it's really interesting how attentive they are to you right off the bat right? Hey, what are you doing? And stuff like that. And so um, it would be easier. I can imagine it would be easier as I come home, I'm exhausted. I just want to finish my meal that you just hand them something that's high stimulation, right? Um, Like she had talked about low stimulation toys versus high stimulation toys, like social media and and really every colors and screens and everything Mm -hmm. happened like that, how that's the the easier path. But um, she really encouraged parents and even our listeners and, and, and me, honestly, that if you take the harder path now, um, it's, there's going to be a brighter future ahead for sure. So let me ask you this, right? Cause you're, you're, you're a new father and we were talking a little bit about this offline, but I think it's going to be valuable for our listeners, um, to at least think about these topics. So we're obviously new parents are in this quote unquote personal development generation. I mean, that's what we care about. We care about passion. We care about self-development. Um, so how do you balance that, right? This self-growth quote unquote selfishness, getting your career in line, um, doing the things you want to do. You know, we talked about meditating, reading, uh, working out, but then also, you know, and, and doing those behaviors, hoping that, you know, your daughter will see that and also follow suit, but also being more present with your daughter and understanding that, Hey, you're going to have to sacrifice some of these things in order for her to even be mindful. Yeah. I, I think what I'll say is I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I'm still very, really new at this and it's very challenging. And I imagine uh, right now it's two of us and, and one child. And imagine when you have two children like that completely, you know, you're get outnumbered. So it's going to be even more challenging. Um, I think the, the fact that we just had a conversation with her and about, um, you know, mindfulness in children, how important that is. What I just mentioned that I've started really appreciating that she's looking at me or, and so sometimes when I'm looking at my phone and like I've just fed her or something and she's like looking at me uh, and then I see her turn over to my phone. I'm like, I was like, okay, I got to put that down. Right. Is I need to be mindful in this situation. Yeah. As she mentioned, when the baby's in the doctor's office, they're so mindful, just looking at the paper or they're looking at the toy and stuff like that. And we're born mindful. And it was right. such a, a fascinating thing to me. And then all of a sudden, you know, as we get older, our attention gets hacked with everything else around us, but also internally as well, right? Your own thought process, you're not living in the present moment. So it's just a, a constant reminder um, to just keep myself accountable when it comes to that. Um, obviously, the other aspect of uh, learning and stuff, the things that we're passionate about, um, well, what I'll say is it's good to have um, good support staff, good partners and 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 i thank you for this with your flexibility right to be able to to get on a podcast whenever and and move things around and and be able to carry the load but um going back to jade's point actually when she talked about building his systems super super important right and so um like for instance reading a book like okay when am i gonna do that right um all right so maybe now i'm not gonna listen to music when i'm working out right instead i'm gonna listen to that podcast because i don't have time or uh, I'm going to listen to a book and stuff, you know, maybe a better book or something like that. Um, same thing, like, you know, when I'm driving, um, I always did that anyway, but yeah. that time's going to be valuable too. Um, 
And, and then ultimately being okay with the fact that um, this is just a phase in life that's going to pass. So I think about something Kelly Starrett said, um, he wasn't with us at the time. I think I heard him on another podcast, like the, the world's best ad podcast talking mm-hmm. about how there's the concept of balance, right? Mm-hmm. Which I thought it was really profound that you're never always in balance, right? Yeah. It's a pendulum on both sides of the extreme and it swings like a hundred miles an hour. And there's a brief moment that you're actually in balance. And that one really stuck with me. I don't know why, but like right now I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with the fact that if I can get three hours of training in a week, that's just, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really a win. And I think the, those who have really known me for a long time, if they heard that <laughs> they, they would be appalled. Um, but I had to be okay with that. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. If I sleep five hours, that's okay. This is going to pass like anything else. Mm-hmm. Like there's an important reason. And this all comes back. I mean, we've talked about this on time and time again about, hey, just be kind to yourself. Like, hey, yeah. look, I, no, I'm not going to develop coronary artery disease <laughs> because I've missed like a few weeks. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it's okay. You control what you can control. Dude, it's so key. It's funny. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was at the gym. So like, I've been pretty impressed with my own kind of just progress with hypertrophy, cutting, all that kind of stuff. And it's funny because obviously when COVID came around, I wasn't doing anything, you know, I'm so kind of quote unquote OCD about getting to the gym. I can't really work out at home. I try to do some things and I was, you know, plateauing or I wasn't really making gains. And I look back and I'm like, wow, it was just a phase, right? Like looking back, I'm so okay with what happened because listen, in the end, if you want it, you're going to make it happen. And when things kind of, again, that pendulum shifts and now the gyms are back open, you have that opportunity to now go and do what you want to do. And understanding that, hey, this is how life's going to be. There's going to be a point again in the future where I won't have enough time to probably go in the gym and train as, you know, which is what you're in right now. That's okay, you know. So, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a great analogy that, that Kelly made there. Yeah, and, and to your point about training at home, like, again, I'm very fortunate that I've got <laughs> good um, tools at home mm-hmm. that I can train. I, I don't – I mean, the gym that I have is literally a quarter of a mile away from my home. Um, and um, – and it, it's just better. It's just better. I, I can jump around. I can do what I want to do. I can really train. And it's much more efficient of a workout. But a lot of my sessions, I've started training at home. So like if she does cry, I can stop my workout and pick yeah. her up, right? So a 50-minute workout sometimes turns into an hour and 80-minute workout. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's this just goes to show you that sleep. that's a <laughs> – Yeah, yeah. That This is the beautiful example. That was um, not scripted right there, folks. Uh, but yeah, an hour and 40-minute workout. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, uh, and it's less efficient, uh, but I can get the tasks done. And that's all right. Yeah. Like It's not always about being 100%. Sometimes 80% is, is, is just fine. Cool. Nice man. Uh, the last thing I wanted to bring up about this, that something that's important to me at least that, you know, I saw a lot of when I was shadowing um, pediatrics as a third year medical student was just bad, beha- quote unquote, bad behavior by parents uh, when they would bring their children in to the office. You know, one of the mm. bo- one of the things that got me under their skin was just blaming their child for things. Right. So child's not reaching the growth or they're reaching it too much. Right. Obesity, they think it is on the way. Uh, ears aren't clean. There's too much wax. And Parents would be like, I told you how to clean your ears. I told you to do this. I told you to do that. And, you know, it's almost like disrespectful to kind of just blame your child in front of somebody else. And children are smart enough to realize like, damn, you're kind of throwing me under the bus here, even though I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but that sets you up for future. That sets the kid up for future failure and just future trauma too, you know? Um, and I think it, it should really be a, a, a 
better rapport and relationship between the father and the kid and working together to see, hey, what works? How can we make progress? Uh, let's ask the doctor for guidance and say, hey, is this something that's not on the kid? Is this, you know, who should take onus for this? How should we be better? And making it just more of teamwork uh, more than anything and for parents to be engaged during visits, right? Dr. Chu mentioned one of her pet peeves is parents kind of just being on their phones, not present. Um, so getting off your phone and just making sure that visit can go smoothly. Yeah, man, uh, that's such a, the word trauma that you use. I'm glad you use that word. It's, it's so funny because, you know, and then like we inflict this damage. I mean, we, we do it to ourselves all the time. Right. And I remember I had an attending, he was a med pizza attending who, who talked about how his frustration was and he, how he liked working with kids rather than adults, because most of the issues that adults present with in terms of chronic illnesses, right. Whether it's COPD from smoking for a long time, diabetes for not taking care of themselves, or whatever it might be, um, those are self-inflicted things. Um, kids, it doesn't. That's not the case, right? They're ill because of a respiratory issue, or like a vi viral issue, or whatever it might be. But sometimes they have issues because of what's inflicted upon them mm. by their parents yeah. or the external factors, right? Um, and that's kind of what you're talking about. So the emotional aspect is not what he was alluding to at the time, but man, is that critical, right? Mm -hmm. And and, mm -hmm. and again. Nowadays, when, um, again, you know, we're talking about the mental health issues and what this pandemic has done to folks from that aspect, 10, 20 years down the road, what trauma we experience now, how that's going to manifest its rear, you know, a rear its ugly head, um, that's going to be a real problem. Mm -hmm. and, but again, it just goes back to just throwing band-aids on and patching it up. Don't worry, we'll patch it up in 20 years from now, right? And as we're going to talk about a little bit, preventative medicine, yeah. um, how could we do that? And that's kind of what you're <laughs> what you're touching through. So um, I think that's a good segue, man. Yeah, let's get <laughs> into preventative medicine. Cool, man. Yeah, so our last episode here was with Dr. Raghav Sharma. So he's an intern right now in Chicago, but uh, we'll be doing PM&R at Wisconsin. So um, it's cool to see having another physiatrist resident, you know, closer to age to us um, coming onto the show. So yeah, this episode was all about preventative medicine. Uh, he has his own podcast called the preventive medicine podcast. There we go. Got that one. Right. <laughs> um, and his kind of definition and his perspective on what he's doing, why he started it and what his goals are. Yeah, dude. Um, impressed fellow podcaster, but I really love the mission of their show. Right. <laughs> um, and, I think what I want to emphasize is what the hell does that even mean? And we <laughs> asked him that it's, it's, it's the, um, maybe the, hmm, the keystone question. Is that appropriate? Um, on their podcast that they ask every single person. Um, and you know, he had a really good actually uh, blog, um, an article on his blog about this, which we can link for folks. Um, but I really, really like his definition of it and his, or not even definition, but his approach, his yeah. philosophy on it. And I looked this up, right. And, because people talk about this all the time. We talk about this all the time. And that's kind of a sideways mission of our show as well. But, you know, preventative medicine means different things to different people, right? Yeah. The dictionary definition is like the action of stopping something from happening or arising. Mm. It's pretty and big. I, although that's admirable, right? Uh, it's not realistic. Yeah. It's just not, right? Um, and I think the way most of us refer to preventative medicine is like risk mitigation, or um, even delaying injury or disease or the outcome, right? What have you? And uh, and and I think that that's really really important to understand, especially when it comes to health. Like things are really 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 messy. Yeah. Right. I, I go back to a story. The same attending that I just talked about med pizza. I remember seeing a patient. This is me as a third year medical student, and a patient came in. And she was young, man, maybe like 32, 33. And I asked her about smoking, right? Because 
you get in that amazing social history yeah. oh, when you're yeah. a third year medical student. <laughs> oh yeah. Like you're, you're getting it all. And, um, and she was like, yeah, I'm smoking. And I was like, okay, well, so this is an opportunity to intervene as a third year medical student. So I was like, well, you know, it's not good for you, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And this person was in a trolling mood and she just wanted to give me a difficult time. Yeah. And she was like, okay, well, you know, what about like, you know, you could still get cancer. How do you know? I know somebody who got cancer, even though they didn't smoke. Like, what do you have to say to that? True. <laughs> I just, and at the time I wasn't equipped and I wasn't even ready for that. Yeah. And it was interesting. But what I'm getting at is no, uh, you cannot prevent every single thing. Do we know that, um, you know, smoking can increase your chances of lung cancer? Absolutely. Nobody questions that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We've got health campaigns with all kinds of stuff like that. But you know what? There are a ton of other things that are responsible for lung cancer as well. And so um, I, the point that I'm trying to make and what Raghav's made over and over again is that, no, when it comes to health, like, again, it's a multifactorial cause for a lot of these outcomes. Yeah. And it's, it's about really about risk mitigation. Yeah, I think the one thing that Raghav said that really made a lasting impact on me was, hey, you can prevent at any point, right? Like the way we mm -hmm. typically think about it is before chronic disease occurs, right? Primary prevention. But he's like, no, there's tertiary, mm -hmm. there's quaternary, like you can keep going down the road. So no matter what stage the patient's at and then even hospice, right? Like for those that know, like when, when we're thinking about death and dying and how to make that as comfortable as possible, you can even do preventive medicine then. And he actually recently just brought on a guest um, to talk about that. But when I look at it, right, and, and I, I take, I, I look at it from a global perspective in terms of how do we do this? It's the fact that we don't get taught in medicine, like on the wards, you don't really get taught preventive medicine. We're almost in this mindset of, okay, if chronic disease occurs, that's it. There's nothing much we can really do besides treatment and um, stop them from going further, right? Which I guess is preventive medicine, but we don't think of it that way. So we think of it in terms of preventive lifestyle kind of together in this bunch, which we think of in younger patients who we want to change their diets, change these uh, more on the surface lifestyle factors, their diet, their exercise, their movement, their stress, these types of things so that we can prevent chronic disease from happening, right? But how can we change providers' mindsets from saying, okay, let's look at this visit, sure, with the medication, everything that we're going on, but more from a preventative mindset. What how much better would that be for everyone, right? And I think we'd start to influence patients better. I think our language would improve with the patient, our rapport would improve, um, and we just learn more. And I think through that, we start looking at the data even better. You know, we start answering those questions that we always had at the back of our minds that we never really ask because a lot of times we're like, oh, whatever, this person's going to get cancer, this person, you know, I can't stop this, I can't stop that. Um, but I think it, it's, mm -hmm. it really shapes, uh, shapes who we become as providers, but also kind of changes healthcare. Yeah, such a sound point. And I think for, for those of uh, folks that are still considering a career in medicine that might be listening, there there are actually residencies for preventive mm -hmm. medicine. And a, a bulk of the exposure that you get is in, you know, I think most of them end up with a master's degree in public health, because again, these messages have to be communicated at the mass level, like yeah. we've already talked about a couple of times. Uh, but to your point about the different types of preventive medicine, I'm going to lay those out because I think that's uh, worthwhile, yeah. right? You already touched on prim primary prevention. Secondary prevention is is uh, the next level, right? So it's, it's this is something that's reducing basically the risk of complications once you have the disease. Mm -hmm. Um, and also like earlier diagnosis and intervention to pre prevent progression. So um, a classic example would be pre-diabetes. We know that actually that's kind of fallen out of favor too, like diabetes, like strict time points, right? Mm -hmm. I think just 
uh, for folks that know that there's a marker called A1C, which is like a, a three month snapshot, not a three month snapshot, like a three month video of like how your blood glucose or sugar is controlled. And when your A1C is a certain number, we say you're a diabetic, when a certain number is pre-diabetic, I think it's kind of falling out of favor, right? That, right. Mm-hmm. When you're pre-diabetes, the, the risk of cardiovascular disease down the road is actually literature supports is just as bad as diabetes, right? So preventing like, uh, or, or mitigating the risk of progression to diabetes would be secondary prevention. Tertiary would be like putting rehab measures in after somebody had a stroke, right? So this is where inpatient rehab, our world comes in. If somebody had a stroke, you're getting them as strong as possible so they don't go home and fall and break a hip, right? That's a tertiary prevention type of situation. Same thing with cardiac rehab programs, um, you know, so they can go up and downstairs and they can be functional afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then quaternary prevention, which is somewhat more of a novel concept. Um, that's what he talked about. It's like where you're preventing over medicalizations, the hospice point that you brought up, like, Hey, we don't want folks to your end of life care issues. And you want to protect the patient from excessive medical invasion and stuff, right. To, to compromise the quality of life. And, and I think that that's uh, worthwhile for people to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better, man. I think it's a perfect segue to also talk about now kind of evidence-based medicine, which was another topic that we talked about. And, this is interesting, right? Because I think Raga made a great point that evidence-based medicine, again, just like preventive medicine, means different things to different people. You have the people mm-hmm. who see one article that supports their view, and they're like, boom, here's the evidence. You see people who see both sides of the views, and they're like, okay, there's no evidence. You see people who just take anecdotal sides, right? There's, oh, well, this patient did this, so it must be true. So it's, <laughs> we're, and again, we're living in this world where everyone and everything is saying, no evidence, 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 evidence. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where's the data? Show me, show me, show me. And it gets overwhelming, right? And I think it's important to kind of break this down, but also for a lot of the people out there to kind of just take a step back and realize like, hey, this is all nuance. This is all gray area. We know from even 30, 40 years ago, the things that we once thought were true are not anymore, right? So coming in with the approach as a provider to understand like, hey, this is what the evidence quote unquote shows, right? This is what the data shows. This is what anecdotes I've seen. Um, this is how I want to practice and how I think it could, you know, benefit the patient. It's something that we have to look more into rather than finding, you know, and, and looking at our biases, right? Rather than saying, okay, this is what I believe in. I'm only going to listen to people who agree with me, right? Which is exactly what's happening with the COVID pandemic. Um, I think that's super important. And the one thing that you've said in this podcast that is so true is, you know, not letting the evidence dictate your practice, but letting it guide it, right? Like that is so key. You can't let the evidence dictate. It's going to be a zero sum game eventually, right? I mean, sure, there's certain things out there that are strict, sure, like 100%, this is what the evidence shows. But a lot of it, I mean, I'm sure you can find a study out there that's like, uh, actually, this doesn't show as much as we thought it did. So what are you going to do at that point? Are you going to be a provider who just doesn't do anything? No. I mean, you're going to do what you think is best. But again, let the evidence guide and not dictate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. There, I'm trying to figure out what else is there for me to add is, you know, I think that the point is just that the external evidence in terms of literature and data, like on PubMed, which for anybody can access to, and, and that's where we're all the, you know, um, the platform for a lot of the studies is, um, I think it was John A.N.80s or whatever, like, you, you know, have somewhere in the neighborhood, I don't know why 70,000 studies per day get published or something like that. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, is it, are they all amazing studies? I don't know, probably not. And so also sifting through the literature and seeing and evaluating the methods to see what's actually a good study versus not, um, that's also a task in itself. It's very, very challenging. The fact of the matter is, we were just talking about it offline, is um, when we post something, on social media, like people don't even want to click on the post 
to read something for 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what makes people, I mean, what, you know what I mean? Like uh, nobody's going to want to read a, a 10 page paper or like 15 page paper, a scientific paper. Like that's not, that's just not exciting. Like people can't even read books. Right. I mean, when you want 30 second clips. So, so that's a challenge in itself. Um, and, and uh, the other uh, point of it is I think that, um, to your point, it's like, you know, there's also harm in not doing something because if there is an evidence, right, there's a cost of, of doing something, right? Those are the risks that these are conversations that I have with patient, but I also tell people like that there, there's a risk of not doing something, right? That's the risk to, to your quality of life, uh, whatever it might be. It, maybe we don't have randomized control, like hundreds of randomized control sciences to support this intervention. Um, but we also, you know, have uh, enough evidence and, and, you know, all I can do is point you in the direction and then you have to decide. What, how I feel about this today, because uh, I, I do have my own patients and, and we have to make decisions on a daily basis is I think that, hmm, but I think that as the risk of harm gets greater and greater, I think we need to be more rigorous about the data, the quote unquote evidence, the external evidence and the studies mm -hmm. that we have to support that, right? I think when, when the risk of harm is very, very low, I feel comfortable to say, okay, it's worth a try, yeah. right? What do you have to lose? You still have things to lose, right? There's effort, there's money, financial harm, those kinds of, I talk about this all the time, but it's not as great as like maybe a harm of like getting a big surgical procedure done when there is an evidence behind it or injecting something in somebody. Like for instance, we talk about this in an upcoming episode um, of amniotic tissue, right? Uh, products that are injected into people of like now we actually have evidence to support that cause infections and morbidity down the road. And hey, that cannot happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that is really, really important uh, for people to consider as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just a couple follow-ups um, for what you just said. So you mentioned how the number of papers are just so increased now, right? Um, if you look back, I think in the 70s, the doubling time for the amount of information was like five to 10 years. And now mm -hmm. it's like, Two to, two to four weeks, the amount of papers that are doubled, the amount of scientific information. So obviously 99% of that is going to be like bogus garbage because we, we live in this um, time right now where people just want to publish, right? We build our resumes, our self-worth, our job opportunities, all this by how much how much writing can we put on a resume based off being a first author to the last author? Um, and it's funny, if you go to PubMed, right, and you type in any keyword, on that left side, you'll see the years, right, from like 1900 to 2020, and you just see it go up. Like the amount of, <laughs> the amount of blue bars you see on that right side from like 2010 to 2020 is astronomical compared to what you were seeing in the past. Now, obviously, that's because, you know, we have more people, we're, we're, we're searching for things, we're looking for things, but it just also shows you how much more information is out there, right? So again, I think a lot of this turns out to be a zero-sum game when we look at everything. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention, oh my God, I lost my train of thought actually. Oh no, here we go, was um, talking about evidence, right? So a lot of people like to say there's no evidence for this, right? Well, that's wrong. There's actually just no data for it, right? And so the absence of data does not mean the absence of evidence, right? And I think that's such an important Part for clinicians to understand, people in policy um, that you know do public health to understand is just that if we don't know something, that doesn't mean we know it works or it doesn't. It just means that we have to do an experiment to understand it, right? So you can't knock it down or you can't support it. Um, those are really kind of the two things I wanted to bring up that I think. Yeah, you know, no, no, I think uh, uh, I think what you're getting at, and uh, I say it right, the saying actually. <laughs> no, that, no, no, no. Uh, 
you said it perfectly, but uh, but I think the more catchy and ringy saying is the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Oh, there we right? go. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> that's what a lot of folks talk about, which is true, right? I mean, uh, what people will always throw is like, hey, listen, you know, I don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell me that jumping out of a, a 30,000, uh, you know, foot uh, airplane or whatever, where it is, is um, I need a parachute for that. I, I don't need that study. Um, I know that it works and <laughs> people kind of use that. And I go back to episode again, I think maybe episode 14 with Dr. Jerry Malenga, when he came on, talked about, Hey, this term ABM evidence-based medicine used to be, or it's now become a, like a, you know, a suit of armor for the academic academician um, and, and say, Hey, listen, there isn't any evidence and you can't, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I brought up the, the, the discussion of orthobiologics of, Hey, it's really hard you know, you could say, and you could dismiss folks and saying, "Hey, listen, you're, you, if you're living on the fringe, it's very, very challenging." Um, but at the same time, discovery only happens when you're exploring things and you're you're, you're walking the boundaries. Mm-hmm. But that being said, that is why it's so critical for the folks who are quote unquote on the fringe, right? Who are maybe or fringe isn't a great word, so I'm going to use the word forefront. Right? Who are at the forefront of medicine? Who are the pioneers? Who are looking for discovery? It's very, very important for those folks to do it the right way, right? So have the right intentions because patients are the ones who are going to end up suffering. And so, you know, actually collect data. This is why I, I like what Dr. Malanga talked about. The importance of collecting data is because mm-hmm. again, I keep using the word uh, orthobiologic example. If you, you can do all the kinds of PRP, all the kinds of uh, MSC procedures and cellular procedures and make tons of money and make it a very lucrative business. And if you know it's working, it is your obligation to actually try to collect this data and publish it. If you're not going to publish it yourself, give it to somebody who can't publish mm-hmm. it, right? Because that is how progress gets made. That is how PRP gets covered, right? Yeah. We know that PRP is far superior when it comes to knee osteoarthritis, which is the most prevalent condition, at least in this country, um, you know, for, uh, for musculoskeletal type of uh, issues. Um, and so that has to happen. And, and the onus is on us. And to Raghav's point, though, when, you know, his his thing is all about preventive medicine is it's also incumbent upon folks like us to make sure that we're communicating the evidence appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. Communicating the message. This comes back full circle to the discussion that we had um, talking about, you know, public health messages of how important it is to, uh, to make sure, Hey, look, this is kind of what the science says. And then also let's understand it well. And then to the lay person communicate, Hey, look, there's a lot of nuance to this and uh, I'll try to explain to you the best you can. So you would really understand it and let's make a, informed decision together because we're partners. Yeah, absolutely, man. Last point I'll make here is, you know, I like thinking about the future. Me and I always tell Mira these things like, hey, what if, what if this happens? What if that happens? And lately what's been on my mind is, you know, with the advent of precision medicine, right? Nutrition, fitness, mm-hmm. we're trying to be more guided towards the individual. How does the evidence kind of guide us through that, right? I think we're going to be seeing more case reports. We're going to be seeing more um, smaller studies to show like, Hey, this is what I did with my subset, you know, of, of population. So I think it's gonna get interesting, uh, to see kind of where the world goes, especially with all these, uh, tech, tech companies, you know, looking at the gut microbiome to the heart to meditation and all trying to make a difference in terms of, uh, making it more personalized. So should be an interesting, uh, upcoming years. Dare I say medicine's getting redefined, bro. I think so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, guys, uh, another awesome episode. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate you guys. As always, if you have feedback, please reach out to us. You can um, hit us up on social media, MedRedefined on Twitter, Instagram. Email us, MedRedefined at gmail.com. Love to hear feedback. Uh, but also, you know, anything good that you like that we're doing, um, whether you hate or love our voices, can't change those really. But um, 
uh, you know, any feedback, um, positive or negative is, um, is appreciated. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you're enjoying these short form podcasts, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen to these episodes. And if there's anything that you think we're doing well or that you wish to see, please leave us an email at medredefined at gmail.com or you can tell us your thoughts through leaving a review. As always, if you are enjoying this and you think others will as well, please go ahead and subscribe and share these episodes with your loved ones. Time for that medical disclaimer. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. Have an awesome week.